1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. This afternoon, I spent a few minutes trying to track down the origin of a phrase with which I think we are all familiar. In fact, it is now almost a a stated principle, uh, almost a doctrine of our culture. You see it in all kinds of pop psychology, self-help books. In fact, it's, it's been around for maybe a couple of decades, maybe even three. Iconic figures like Oprah and Dr. Oz espouse this principle. If you type it into Amazon, look for books dealing with this particular topic, you'll find more than 5,000 books have been written on the subject. And I'm confident you know the phrase. Now, I couldn't actually find the origin of it, though it does seem to begin to rear its ugly head in the midst of you know, what is uh, the, the beginnings of the modern uh, psychology uh, movement, and especially in our culture. So, see if you can finish this for me. I can't learn to love others until I learn to... Love myself. Y'all do know this one, don't you? Maybe you've bandied it about. I hope not. If so, you're going to be embarrassed here in the next 60 seconds, alright? Because the most disturbing part of this phrase is that I found a number of Christian resources, supposed Christian resources, that encourage such of you, and they go to one of the most famous statements of Jesus in order to prove it. The question was put to our Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And you know the first answer, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus then being Jesus, He never just gives an answer they expect, He gives the right answer, right? He says, and the second is like unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so naturally, what does that mean? You can't love your neighbor until you learn to love yourself, right? Wrong. Really, really wrong. Like, never, ever right. Alright? Have I made this clear enough? Alright? Again, I told you, if you've used this phrase, you're going to be embarrassed for a moment. And if you've used it with somebody else, you do need to spend the rest of your week finding them and apologizing to them. Alright? Because this is not what the text means, and it's not what Jesus means, because this is not what the Bible means by love. In many ways, it is a, it is a way that, that somebody's been able to actually make it mean the opposite of what it actually does mean. It is kind of a postmodern deconstruction of the concept. Where in fact, Jesus is doing something that Paul then elaborates on in great detail. 
rather than being this idea that I can't learn to love you or love my neighbor or love others until I first learn how to love me. Kind of the the foundational reality of agape love, of biblical love, of Christ-centered and Christ-modeled love is it doesn't matter if I love myself or not, and it doesn't matter if you're lovable or not. The command that is given, the expectation, is that I am to seek to relate to you in such a way that it is consistent with sacrifice, service, genuine, biblical, Christ-like love. And this is what Paul then defines for us in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. A part of the text that we started a couple of weeks ago, and we took a little break last Wednesday and kind of did that little uh, discussion on when was Christ crucified. And so now, now we turn our attention back, back to it. Uh, what, what Paul does for us here is, is a, it's a great service. I mean, this, this to me is one of those verses, like I said a few weeks ago, you can't run away from 1 Corinthians 13. It's one of those passages that's difficult because it's not difficult, right? It speaks very clearly, it speaks very straightforwardly, and you can't wiggle your way out of it. It is so plain, as I mentioned two weeks ago, you can even insert your name where the word love appears and find out, does, does that fit? If I put my name where love is, then does that accurately describe me? And so, so Paul gives us 16 descriptions of, of this profound and rich term, which again is helpful. He's going he's to give us positive ideas, he's going to give us negative ideas, uh, he's going to give us some very straightforward statements, he's going to use some more poetic uh, language in order to describe it, but, if, but when we get done, we have a pretty robust, robust view here of what love really does look like. And so we're breaking down these 16 points into four points, each with sub-points. And I'll tell you right now, if you were to turn this sermon in to my preaching professor, he'd hate it, all right? Not because he'd disagree with me handling the text, but he would say this is way too many, there's way too much um, uh, of the alliteration, and there's way too many subpoints. But as I have told you before, he's no longer my professor. All right? He's not the boss of me. And uh, he's only shown up twice. Okay? And it's been a while. So I don't have to worry about it tonight. So he is not here. All right. So Paul, Paul does, I do think, though, we can see four basic categories of descriptions here. Last time we looked at love's reaction. And Paul does begin with two words that I think are foundational, fundamental to love. Love is patient, love is kind. Every other quality he talks about, can, you can track a string from all the others back to these two. That this really is it. That when it comes to my love, if I'm going to demonstrate Christ-like, biblical, agape, unconditional love, then it's going to begin with me relating to the people in front of me, whoever that may be, but in particular in church life is the context here, that I'm going to be patient, Or as the New King James says, I'm going to suffer long with people. I'm going to be patient and kind. And again, you'll note this. If you go back and read all those other qualities and you think, yes, each and every one of those requires then patience and kindness of some kind. I mean, in a a few, we'll end up getting, not tonight, we'll get to keeps no record of wrong. 
Man, if there's any accounting we love to do, we love to keep records wrong, don't we? Yeah, we're good at that one. we got big books full of all kinds of wrongs people have done against us. To show this kind of love does require patience and kindness. And so, so Paul begins, I think, in the appropriate way. This is how love re- reacts. What love's, love's expression is seen in its most fundamental sense in this kind of patience and kindness. All right, so let's move on to letter B, and that is love's rejection. Now Paul also does something really helpful. He's not just going to tell us what love is. He's going to tell us what it's not. And the, the most descriptions in the text are what we would call negative descriptions. He's going to say, love is not, love is not, love is not, love is not, this, 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 and this. Which, again, I find very helpful in order to clarify what you mean by a word. It's helpful that you tell me what you don't mean by that word. What what it doesn't mean, what it doesn't look like, and in this case, Paul picks up on uh, some pretty identifiable tendencies on our part, all right? And he's going to do a couple of them are pretty straightforward. A couple of them are rather poetic, uh, illustrative. I mean, he uses some imagery here that I think we'll identify with. So, eight qualities that love rejects. I mean, I told you this was a 16-point sermon. I just broke it up into four different points, but there's still 16 points, all right? At the end of the day, there's still going to be 16 points, and at this point, then, there are eight. All right, eight Actions, attitudes that love rejects. Number one, love rejects jealousy. Love rejects jealousy. So again, just to note it here here in the text, it's the next part of verse 4. And and I don't know if you ever noticed this, and when people reference Scripture, if they reference it like verse 4a, 4b, 4c, that typically is a way to identify phrases in each of the texts, all right? So technically, this is 4B. It's just kind of a way people who study and talk about the Bible uh, break it up so you can identify where you're talking about. So it says it in verse 4, love does not envy. So after being patient, after being kind, he then turns around with a negative concept, love does not envy. Now, we, I've used the word jealousy because I think in some ways that, that might more fully express the concept. It is also similar, I think it's got some foundation in the Tenth Commandment. I think it is similar to language also of coveting. It, when Paul uses the word for jealousy or the word envy, it's kind of got two ugly sides to it. All right, Both sides are ugly, but there are two sides to this. A jealous person on the one hand... Is, is the person who, who really, really wants what somebody else has and is frustrated that that person has it and I don't. In fact, jealousy may rear its ugly head in a form like this. A neighbor, maybe a family member, maybe a friend... Maybe they get a job promotion. Maybe they drive home in that snazzy new car you've always wanted. Maybe it's something even a bit more serious. Maybe from a distance you observe a relationship they have with a spouse or a relationship they have with a child. I mean, it can get, it can get pretty serious here, this concept. 
Do you look at it? And in your heart, rather than saying, well, I'm glad they've got that. Even it can happen among brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe somebody sitting next to you on the pew talks about something that happened to them. And in your heart, rather than thinking, oh, that's fantastic, your thought is, I hate it that you got it and I didn't. Now, the good news is here is nobody here has ever done that. All right? So we're talking about all those other people, right? We're talk- well, I'm sure we're talking about the Sunday morning folks that don't show back up on Sunday night and Wednesday night, right? That's who we're talking about, right? Now, understand this word jealousy, you know, there, there could be temptations to feel a twinge of it. I don't think Paul's really talking about that. When, when we use the word jealousy or the word envy, we're talking about kind of a, a tendency to indulge in a particular attitude towards somebody. Remember I said there are two ugly sides to it? On the one hand, it's this, you get something that I want, and, and it bugs me, I didn't get it, and you got it. But then there's also another feature to it. Not only do I think I deserve it and you don't, but I don't think you should have it at all. I don't think you should have it at all. Not only do I think I deserve it more, I don't think you deserve it. <laughs> Whatever it may be. I have this heart in me that suggests... No, that, that's not for you. Why do you have it? Why don't I get it? And here's, here's what will happen. If this kind of jealousy then is fed, and it can be, by the way, this kind of jealousy can be fed in our hearts, we can love it. Oddly enough, we can love it. We can start to feed it. And it can start, start to, to, to begin to think things like, I've done all these things for the Lord. Look at what I give. Look at how much I serve. Look at what I've done. Look at what I give up. Look at how much I help people. Why am I not getting what they're getting? And, and it might even turn to the Lord. Lord, do you realize? I can tell you what they were doing last weekend. Do you realize what they were doing? Because I'll be glad to tell you what they do every weekend, because I know, all right? In other words, I'll let you know what they're, if that'll be helpful. Do you realize what they've been doing? It can turn into this kind of, of, of again, covet, covetousness. This, this angst and almost anger that somebody else has something that you want, and don't, you don't think they should have it. Now, think about this in the context then in which 1 Corinthians 13 comes to us. Paul is addressing an issue in the church where some people have spiritual gifts and they're lording it over others, and others don't have those spiritual gifts and they're wishing that they did. So Paul is going after that individual. That individual who's looking at somebody with one of the flashy spiritual gifts... And the individual who's saying, why do they have that? Why do they have that? And they get to be up in front of people and people know their name and they get accolades and they get recognized. Why does that happen to them? Why doesn't it happen to me? Look how much better I, I am than they are. Jealousy. Boy, that's, it, it is a profound and destructive quality, is it not? An attitude that can come up quick, by the way. It can come up quick and it can take root really quickly as well. It can get away from you. All right, so it's Wednesday night. What's one of the things I do to Wednesday night folks? I let you into pastor world, right? Do you know pastor world is rampant with this? And I'm sure your profession would be as well, or your circles. I mean, it's not, it's not unique, except in this. 
Because I've been in the conferences, I've heard the conversations, I can peg it, I bet my wife can too, can peg it from a hundred yards away. I can tell when two guys are having a conversation and the conversation is trying to one-up each other so that the other guy will feel jealous that his ministry is better than the guy that he's talking to. Happens a lot. It happens a lot. And it's not uncommon. And, and I'll be honest with you, church. I, I, you know, th- this can spring up even in your own pastor's heart if he's not careful. Why does such and such get that kind of recognition? That, do, you, do you know what they do at their church? All right? why, why, why are they getting that kind, those kind of accolades? Do you understand God? So just know that guys on this side of the pulpit can have the same kind of trouble with jealousy. But again, Paul's words here, though, are straightforward. Love does not envy. Notice some of the verses, by the way. Two verses. And they're there on your notes. So, uh, of course, they're on the screen as well. Proverbs 27.4. Wrath is fierce. and Anger is a flood. But who can stand before jealousy? Is that not a great statement? Think about this. And again, this is classic Hebrew poetry here, where you have a section that makes a point, and then the second line comes back. Sometimes it may, it may contrast with the first line. Sometimes it may express a fuller idea. Sometimes it may take it in a new direction. All right, so wrath and anger are two words that are kind of used synonymously here. So, so the, the writer of the proverb is saying, Wrath is something that is, that is strong and powerful. It's a fierce quality in the human heart. And then uses this synonymous second phrase, and anger is a flood. So th- think about the power of a flood. All, you know, we've seen that, right? We've seen what floods can do. I mean, how, how do you restrain a flood? That's, that's the point. You don't, right? I mean, in other, in other words, that's it. If you've got a flood, then it has overtaken whatever restraints it had, right? Either the banks of a river or a dam or a levee. If, a fl- if it's flooding, then restraints have been overtaken. So, wrath is fierce, anger is a flood. But then notice how he takes this in a, in a unique direction. But jealousy? Far more dangerous than either. Who can stand against jealousy? There's no recourse against jealousy is almost what he's saying here. This, this, this is as fierce as it gets. It's worse than a flood. Jealousy finds its way in the human heart. And then James 3.16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. That's a striking phrase as well, Right? Every evil thing. In essence, I think James is suggesting here, this, this is foundational kind of sin. And he's got good warrant to say this. Genesis chapter 4. Anybody recall off the top of your head what story that is? The sec- Genesis chapter 4 is the second sin ever committed, according to the text. So you've got the you got the tree, right? Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. They get, they get judged for it, get kicked out of the garden. And then you have Cain and Abel, right? What is the fundamental problem? God accepted Abel's 
offering, but not Cain's. And Cain burned with jealousy. Burned with jealousy. And and that that is often stated, by the way, when that story is referenced in other places in Scripture, that, that, that anger, that jealousy is the foundational sin. The murder is the result, is the outcome, is the expression of what is the attitude of the heart. So I would just encourage you to think about your tendencies toward jealousy. And here, here would be my warning then. When you see an inkling of it pop into your heart and mind, treat it as dangerous and don't fiddle with it. Bring it straight to Christ. Go right back to the gospel. Remember that God in His grace has saved you through Christ's cross and resurrection that you are not uh, required to succumb to what would be the burden of jealousy, and that no matter what somebody else may have, when you die and get to glory, no one's going to care. In other words, you get, again, you come back to the gospel and remember what is the gratitude you should have toward God and His salvation. Jealousy. Alright, let's do another one. Boasting. Love rejects jealousy, and love also rejects boasting. So go back to verse 4, and notice that next phrase. Love does not parade itself. Love does not parade itself. The language of parading yourself is language of boasting. I found a couple of interesting references here. Uh, it, it It can speak about bragging. Uh, one source I found said this is a windbag, all right? which I thought was an interesting term, uh, a windbag, and it really this kind of idea goes way, way back, even into ancient times. Everybody's known knows what a windbag is, okay? In other words, he's talking a lot about himself, but there's no substance to it. Uh, but but the, these two ideas in particular, that when Paul uses this language of, of not parading itself, Paul is talking even then, about something that's, that's uncontrolled. Like, like, like just, just this characteristic, this almost habit, you could say, of bragging. And that second phrase there on your notes, to be drunk with pride. The word that's used here does speak to that which is almost out of control. The person who boasts, the person who parades himself or herself, it's the person who just seems to have a knack in every conversation for making it about himself or herself. That, that individual that always wants to bring the spotlight back to me. Constantly bringing it back to me. That's why I think the language that's used here is so interesting. Does not parade itself. You know, parades have been around forever, right? Parades of a variety of forms. For sure, in ancient Greece they had parades. They had parades associated with the Olympic Games. And of course, they had parades primarily associated with military conquest. The Romans, uh, made, I mean, they were, wow, they were experts at this, of parades, as a, as a show of victory, as a show of power. And, and we've, we see these kinds of parades, right? Military parades. You see this, this happening. We've all been to a parade. So what, what is a parade doing? A parade is drawing attention to the people walking down the street, right? 
So think about this image in terms of what Paul just said. So love does not parade itself. So the person who's violating this is the person who, in essence, throws a parade for himself. Right? In other words, you, you decide, all right, I, I'm going to get a city permit, and I'm going to block off Broad Street from, the, from the, the, the firehouse all the way down to Union Point, and I'm going to tell people to line the street. And you know what this parade's going to be? Me just walking down Broad Street. And y'all applauding. Every time I get to a new section, I may stop and do a little twirl for you, alright? And then y'all will applaud, and then I'll move on to the next section, okay? And then you all, everybody can get a chance to just soak in the glory that is me. That's what he's talking about here, boasting. It's this kind of desire to make yourself the very center of attention. So it's interesting, I think Paul is doing a direct contrast here. So the jealous person looks at the one who seems to have it all and says, I wish I had it, but I don't. The boastful person, the one who parades himself, is the person who says, I do have it all, and you should want to be like me. That, that's what the boasting person's doing. That's right. I am the best thing since sliced bread. And if, if I'd been there when sliced bread was invented, I'd have even been better then. All right? In other words, I'm, I'm still, I'm as good as it, as it gets. You're right. I can speak in tongues. I can prophesy. You better believe I am something really special. Parading yourself. Boasting. God warns about this. I think Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 is a great one. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Nor let the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the, in the earth. For in these things I Delight, says the Lord. Here's what's interesting, by the way, about this verse. I, I would argue that boasting is perhaps one, one of the most dangerous qualities because here's what you're saying. If somebody is boasting, if you're parading yourself, if you're thinking, yes, I should be the center of attention, then that means you are ascribing unto yourself glory. Glory. So what are you implying there? If you're ascribing unto yourself glory, you are then by definition saying, I'm better than everyone else around me. I deserve the glory. I'm better than everyone else around me. Now, God has made it clear in His Word that we are to give Him glory. What is God saying by demanding from us that we give Him glory? That He's better than us. That's true, by the way, right? We're all on the same page there. God's better than us. Don't have any Shirley MacLaine wannabes in here. All right, so, okay, good, all right. God is better than us to an infinite extent, right? His transcendence is beyond anything we can think or imagine. His holiness is perfect and complete, and so He is worthy of glory and honor. So what am I saying when I parade myself? Instead of making God the center of my glorifying and honoring, and I want that to come to me, then I am saying, I should be in the same spot as God. There might be another character in the Bible that had that problem. Right? 
Satan, okay? He seemed to have a little issue with this. I'm pretty sure it got him into some trouble, all right? So, you know, in other words, this, this is a serious thing, this quality of boasting. Jealousy, boasting. Now, let me give you this third one because it's tied to this one, and this will just take a minute or two, and that is arrogance. Love rejects arrogance. Again, they're somewhat synonymous, though I do think there's a, there's a, a nuance here. Love does not parade itself. And again, Paul uses such a, such a vivid image. Love is not puffed up. So, so both the person who parades himself is making much of himself. And the person then who is arrogant thinks he's worthy of making that much of himself. He's puffed up. He's unnaturally inflated. We have a phrase. He's full of hot air. He's full of hot air. To puff oneself up, to inflate, to be haughty. And so Paul is telling us again, so this is, this is not what love is. Love, love rejects this. Love rejects making myself the center of attention, and love rejects this desire to think I'm worthy of being the center of attention. Notice a couple other verses here. They're on your notes. Proverbs 8.13 Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate. You want to do an interesting study sometime? Find all the references in the Bible where God says He hates something. Let me ask you parents, do you tell your kids to be careful using the word hate? Right? My mother did. We tell our kids, right? You want to be careful using the word hate? Hate is a strong word, right? I do hate okra. All right, I'm just telling you, I do, okay? I don't know any other way around it. I know it's a strong word, but I do. I hate okra. I know some of you think less of me for that, okay? I know you do. It's a strong word, so I'm not using it lightly. When God says He hates something. Again, it's, it's tied to what I just said, and here's fundamentally why. I mean, there could be a bunch of reasons why, but certainly one of the most important is because the Boasting, arrogant person is assuming a position of divinity. It's assuming a position of divinity by boasting and indulging in arrogance. God hates it. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. Isn't it? And that's irony. It's irony of a sort, right? In other words, when pride, pride assuming you know, that I am worthy of honor. Proverb telling us when pride comes... Then comes dishonor. And perhaps the most famous one. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before stumbling. In other words, not, not only is arrogance an affront to God, but eventually arrogance is a detriment to you. Because we cannot sustain arrogance, right? We can't sustain the inflation of the ego. We can't sustain the hot air. Somebody, somewhere, at some time, comes along with a pin and pop. Right? All the air goes out. So, so again, these two ideas do go together, but they're a little, I think there's a slight nuance here. Arrogance and boasting. So, so Paul does us a good favor. He's told us that, that love looks a particular way. It, it is patient and it is kind. But then there's a way that love doesn't work. It doesn't look like this. It's it's not envious, it's not jealous, it's not boastful, and it's not arrogant. Again, I think he's taking a direct shot at the folks in Corinth. 
Those in particular who were boastful and arrogant, who assumed that the, that the fact that they had one of the flashier spiritual gifts meant that they somehow were worthy of such flashiness, that this can be the problem. That God, and it's, it's merely His grace that determines giftedness. God simply decides. Simply decides it. It's all that it is. And then to say to make much of that and say, oh, well, I'm, if I got one of these big gifts, I must be super spiritual. So we've got to watch out for that kind of love showing up. Now, next, next week, uh, I won't be here. All right? You'll want to, you'll want to come back next uh, Wednesday night. Uh, Dennis Hanyu is going to give uh, a report on his trip to Haiti. Uh, I would ask that you pray uh, for me and for Becca and for John and Aaron. We will be going to a conference uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, um, together for the gospel, T4G. Uh, you can go look that up, by the way, and you can see past stuff. So, uh, John MacArthur will be there, uh, Mark Dever will be there, Al Moeller, uh, John Piper, Matt Chandler, these are the, David Platt, th- these are the folks who will be there. It's definitely kind of thing that you've got to be ready for, um, and uh, maybe not everybody would be, but there's a lot of preaching, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of preaching, but it, it, is, it is something they do every two years, uh, and, uh, and Becca goes along to make sure we behave ourselves. All right, so, anyway, but she, we, are, we are looking forward to that. By the way, that'll be just during the week, okay, so I'll be here on the Sundays, uh, but uh, would encourage you to come back, and then, in, so then in two weeks, we'll be back in, in this, uh, and to me, one of the most interesting statements that Paul makes is the next one, where, where he, he says, Love does not behave rudely. In other words, love is polite. Love is polite. And so we'll take some time and look at that, all right? And see what, is, what does that mean uh, for how we are to show love to others. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for gathering us, and we thank you for this opportunity to be together, to fellowship in prayer, to fellowship in your word. And we're grateful for how this uh, not only joins us together, Uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, but how that continues then to grow us uh, together in Christ's likeness before you. Uh, We thank you for this word to us about love, and we want to be a people who love. We thank you that by virtue of the work of the gospel in us, we can love this way because we have first been loved, and so then we can can reciprocate towards you and then toward others, Christ-like love. And so we ask for... A wisdom, and we, we ask God that, that we would be sensitive to how your spirit uh, demonstrates to us ways in which we may violate this word, uh, and may we seek to live in obedience to it. And I thank you for these who are here tonight. Uh, I thank you, God, for uh, their willingness to give their time to be together, and I pray they would know your hand, your guidance, your wisdom uh, in the days to come. And then we ask, Father, that you'd gather your people back together again. We might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll remind you about our prayer, Grand Minister.